Hey friend, welcome to Job with Julie. This podcast is hosted by me, Julie Slattery, and it is an outreach of authentic intimacy, which is a ministry dedicated to helping people make sense of God and sexuality. All right, we're going to dive deep. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you ever feel like you have to hide your sexual sin and struggle? And maybe that's because you think that if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to battle lust or sexual temptation and certainly not fall into sin. And so that shame keeps you in a place of hiding and trying to pretend like you have it all together when really you are desperate for a safe and authentic community. Well, if that's you, here's some truth you need to know. Being saved doesn't mean that you're never going to make mistakes or you will stop needing God's mercy, grace, and redemption. You just look at the lives of people like the Apostle Paul, who loved God, was totally dedicated to him, but he writes about experiencing an ongoing thorn in his flesh. Or how about David, who obviously loved God? He wrote psalm after psalm, pouring out his worship to him, but he still fell into sexual sin and experienced some pretty severe consequences of that. So that makes us ask, what does it look like to love Jesus, to want to pursue him, but be in the midst of a struggle, perhaps with sexual sin? What does it look like to need to go back to him again and again for redemption and forgiveness? Well, my guest this week is ER doctor, author, and teacher, Lena Abu-Jamra, who has spent most of her adult life battling lust and sexual struggles. We're going to talk about her latest book called Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This. It's about all the things that Lena used to be afraid that people would find out about her until she learned the freedom of actually just being honest with her struggles. You know, all of us are going to have to pursue and cultivate a right understanding of godly sexuality, and then we're going to have to fight to walk it out, and Lena explains this so well. So grab your coffee, sit down, and listen to my conversation with Lena Amujamra. Alina, it's awesome to uh, have this conversation with you, to have you on Job with Julie. Let's jump right into your latest book. Choose like a few words to describe it. It's like raw, vulnerable. I can't believe she wrote those things. <laughs> and I, I'm just wondering, like, <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I mean, I was thinking, like, if we went back and gave this book to your 20-year-old self, knowing that you wrote it, what would have been 20-year-old Lena's like reaction to I thank what you. did you just put in print? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I would have said I wish somebody gave me that book when I was twenty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I really feel like I you read about topics that you struggle with, but I hadn't read in my search because I you know I you know I grew up in a Christian home and I've you know I've, I gave my life to Christ, dedicated my life to Christ. You know, I've, I've wanted to do the right thing in my life. Like it's not, you know, I've not been rebellious outwardly. You know, I, I haven't really had the desire to go, you know, sow my oats and all this stuff. But I think, you know, like, you know, lust, obviously, from a human perspective, is part of every human's DNA, right? And you get saved, and now you're spending your life sort of reconciling the old and the new. And I think, yeah, as a Christian who really wanted to pursue God, who on the outside had it all together in some ways, which nobody does, I get that. But, you know, just I'm just saying in general, yeah, I'd love to have someone say, hey, here's what people struggle with. Obviously, as a 20 year old, you know, I, I can tell you what today's 20 year old sort of how they view this. I mean, there's two layers to it, but I would have been very grateful for a book like this because it would have been a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Okay. Well, you would have been grateful if somebody else wrote it. And I think that's key. <laughs> but what if you knew that you wrote it? 
like that you would get to the place where you were going to be that honest and vulnerable publicly. Right. I would have been like, wow, what motivated you to write this, right? I mean, I think in some ways, um, when you write about topics that are difficult, it's like a pot of boiling water. It's even like if you're a writer, eventually the stuff is going to come out. So you can't, you know, it's, it wouldn't have surprised me to a certain degree. I've always been a hyper honest person. And appreciated hyper-honest people. I grew up in a home where we were honest. We are honest. Sometimes hurt, you know, it hurts to hear the truth, but I believe we need to hear the truth. My father had that characteristic very much so, and I think in a very, like, I appreciated that about him. You always knew where you stood with him. And so I, being wired that way, it wouldn't, like, even looking down the road, I, everything that I struggle with eventually comes out on paper. I should have seen it coming in some ways. I think you don't want to share this. So if I were 20 year old, you know, looking down, I would have, first of all, I would have been surprised that the struggle with lust had lasted this long. I think probably that's one thing. I don't think at 20, I thought it would go on this long. And, and I, and I think I, in some ways the cost to come clean can be on this side of it can be very high looking. You know, until you you live honestly and authentically and you share the things that you struggle with, uh, there's this shame factor that's huge. And so I don't know that I would have believed that I would have done it. In some ways, I would have been impressed that, that I had the bravery to do it as a 20-year-old looking down. Yeah, let me um, pick up on a few things that you said there. You said that at some level, lust is a part of every human's DNA. And you said that you would be surprised that the struggle lasted as long as it's lasted. Where where do you feel like the differences between our normal God-given desire to long for intimacy and we have hormones in our body and you know all the biological pieces of it that you understand far more than I do? Where's the difference between the normal God-given desires for sex and for pleasure versus the lust and how that turns into lust? I think we're lucky to have a book that God wrote <laughs> to tell us. We don't have to guess. And I think that's the key to all of these discussions is either you follow the book or you don't. And I think in our era, in the last you know years, we have made it our, and when I say we, I mean the, the church in the United States in particular, maybe in other places, but I think here, we made it our expertise to redefine the word or to minimize the word or to, you know, place it in context, all the things that we've done. And then, you know, and, and there's degrees of that. It's a spectrum, right? And so you've got the people who have gone the extreme and we just call them now the progressives, right? And whereas like, but, but even, you know, forget the progressives, forget the people who are like, well, I don't believe the Bible's literal. So in the book, he tells us where sex has a place. And he also tells us what we ought to do with lust. In the New Testament in particular, I mean, the Old Testament was very law-based, right? So don't do this, don't do that. In the New Testament, it was a higher calling. Now you had the Christ, you had Christ in you. So you were transformed, the heart of stones taken out the heart. So you know in principle how you ought to live. And so, I mean, the answer on paper has never, I don't think, been that problematic to me as a person who truly lives under the authority of the Bible. It's the execution that's the difficulty. And so the answer to the question, what does God allow? You know, what is, well, no lust really is. I mean, lust is wanting something out of place in essence. So there's a sexual desire. I wouldn't call that lust. I think that's appropriate in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And I think that's meant to be for life. And I think the my concern with the conservative evangelical church that I've been a part of is that we have 
made a lot of wiggle room for what we struggle with. So I remember back in the 70s, divorce had become, remember when Amy Grant? Yeah, I do. Uh, went through, you know, her divorce and everybody acted like she wasn't saved anymore. And it was poor Amy Grant. I mean, at the end of the day, like, in a way, like I say it now, I mean, obviously she's done a lot of her life. I don't think she, but, you know, in a way, like she took the hit when now everyone's divorced and it's not even once but twice or three times in the church and it's almost like there's a very small remnant that really actually believes like like you ought to try to be married for life like it almost seems like an unfathomable thought but but then even like okay we think about like premarital sex like to me again i grew up in an era where it was just assumed that the bible talked about fornication that was sex before marriage so when you say like you know the bible to me has never been unclear on these things it's only in recent years that i hear these conversations people are now going wait Pornia doesn't really mean this, or it doesn't mean that, or does the Bible really say you're not supposed to have sex for marriage? Where's the verse? Show me the verse. Show me the verse. Did Jesus say it, or is that an Old Testament law? And you're like, am I stupid? Like, I- yeah, and I'm with you 100% in terms of God is very clearly defined behaviors that He says are sexual immorality, and as much as we might want to ignore them or minimize them or downplay them, they're there. I think where there's more confusion is the experience of being a sexual person. So you're right about my age and you're, you've been single your whole life. I've been married for the last almost 30 years. And so I feel like, like I've been on the journey of what does it look like to steward my sexuality within the covenant of marriage and the context of marriage, which has its own challenges. But as a single woman, and this is a question that I often get asked by single men and women, I'm still a sexual person. I still have hormones and desires, mm-hmm. There's nowhere for me to channel this. I know what God says not to do, but to what extent are even those desires and feelings and feelings of arousal, are they lust because I'm not married? I think that's where people really struggle. But I don't think the sexual lust is, as you mentioned, is a singles problem, right? I think it's a very dense, it's a human problem. And I, I really make a big point of that even in, in the book, because I really think it's easy to, to categorize, well, of course you're single, you're going to have these desires. It's not, and, and in fact, people email me say, you know, self-gratification is okay. And it's, you know, and all these theories that you have. I don't think this is the issue because all sexual impulse ultimately starts with a thought, doesn't start with the act, starts with the thought. You could argue it, does it start with the eyes or with the mind? I would argue the mind always, and then the eyes, and then the behavior, you know? And that behavior can be carried out to the nth degree. I've been blessed, in a sense, by the Lord to be protected from crossing margins that would be very grave and serious in my life. I think, again, you have to go back to the book. What does God say you do with your sexuality? So, yeah, he did create us sexual beings. And from the second chapter of Genesis, not even the third, he puts man and woman in a covenant, you know, in a relationship. He is it's marriage, basically. And so right away, God, under, you know, creates us as people who have this desire, this innate need, sexual, you know, I think in some ways, all, all creatures, the difference between animals and humans is that we have parameters. We have a mind, we have a soul, we have, you know, we have, we're made in the image of God. Animals are not. And as such, there are certain things that God wants us to experience in the sexual act. And so, you know, I think, again, I, I think you go back to like, you know, A, God says in his word in First Corinthians very clearly by the mouth of Paul, if you are burning with passion, get married. Now, where this is a culturally has, I think this issue with lust has become more problematic because there are some things that I think make it harder in 2023 to deal with. Number one, the number of single people in the church. That was not true in 1960. Right. 
I think that there are some things that have happened culturally now that have created a bigger problem for the single trying to be sexually pure, who recognizes that, yeah, I know, I understand that I'm a sexual being and one solution is to get married, but where do you find that person? And why are that many people still single now? And, and there are, again, a lot of dynamics. So I think if God created sex to be between a man and a woman in marriage, then that God ought to have given us a way to control our sexuality without, because I think this is the tension, without becoming feeling asexual. And I think this is important because I think this has always been a tension for me, which is, okay, I understand the do's and the don'ts. And so for yours, I think, it, you know, the battle for a Christian who wants to follow the Lord is like to suppress, to abate. But humanly, you start to feel as less than yourself. Because you feel a little like, in, in essence, like a eunuch, but you're not a eunuch, yet, right? Because we're, but, but, but it feels like you're not, like there's something wrong with you. And I don't think it's such just sexually. You feel it emotionally. There's a lack of connection and intimacy possible with another human being that I think is, I think it's very difficult to understand. And so I don't think that question you ask, I think it's a very important question. And I don't think the answer is very easy. Talk about the fact that we're sexual beings. Well, how does that now play out in, let's say, let's call it a quote unquote, Puritan culture? Yeah. And I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah. I, I and It's not easy. Yeah. And, you know, we've had a lot of conversations uh, on this podcast about another piece of this, which you can speak into because you weren't born in America. You haven't always lived here, but just the lack of intimate relationships outside of marriage, just the anemic church communities, you know, anemic friendships. And so everything, not just sexually, but in terms of intimacy is put on marriage. Well, listen, I mean, the Arabs, as an example, I can speak, I'm Lebanese. I, I grew up 15 years, but I was a senior in high school by the time we came. So again, mentally, like I was in that, most of my childhood was done, you know, in terms of that phase. And so, yes, I understand the way of another culture and I travel back a lot, but it's still very hard to be single in, a, in the Middle East too. What you have there is sort of, I don't call it accountability, but in a sense, accountability. People live together more than they do here. There's not as many secrets. It's harder. You can have secrets there. It's just harder to have secrets because everybody's in your space and there's not the space you have here. So you end up living in a room in your parents' house. Well, how much can you get away with there, right? And, so, and that's very culturally acceptable. So I think there's some layers of protection in that setting and the church is much more communal. You're right. But I will say this as a single. So there is this layer. Again, you go back to it. You know, why is this battle so hard for singles, and, and especially vis-a-vis -vis intimacy, which I think, by the way, all of our sexual problem in the United States, married or single, at the root of it is misunderstanding intimacy. And, and some of it, I think, is because we don't understand intimacy with the Lord. And if we could work this out, then everything else, when I feel close to the Lord and, and I have a robust, like, well, why is it when you go to a revival meeting, a camp, a conference, whatever, you don't feel the need to sexually act out? Well, because you're, something inside you is full. How do you stay in that space? Why is revival so important? Because there are those times when you feel so close and connected to the Lord. And so I think, yeah, I think that there are some protective mechanisms in other cultures, but I think that heart need for closeness, you can be surrounded by people and still feel achy and needy. I talk about the ache some in my book, and I think there is this human ache. I think a lot of married people understand it. You may be married to someone that you thought was going to be one way and it isn't, or changes after you get married, or, you know, some problems happen and, and there's an ache. 
Well, that is not an ache to be filled with a sexual act. That's what Hollywood has fed us. Your ache will be filled if you can have that perfect sexual relationship with someone. Whereas the ache is, how is that filled? Well, St. Augustine is famous to say, our, you know, about where he found his rest in God. You know, the restlessness, he talks about the restlessness that he had that was ultimately filled with the Lord. That's the battle. And so now why I've made a lot of conversations and podcasts, and I, I think it's, I've always I've mentioned it's, it's not surprising to me that my book Deconstructing on Deconstruction, Fractured Faith, came out first. And now, now I'm talking about sex in this open fashion because I think there is an association. In fact, I actually saw this on, on um, Twitter, and I thought whoever wrote it was brilliant. And he sort of, he says, the drift away from biblical orthodoxy always has the same path. First, we question the inerrancy of scripture. Then we challenge the authority of scripture. Then we backtrack on sexual sin and then ascribe to universalism and then completely leave, leave the faith. Now, stop at sexual sin for a minute. I would say somewhere, when, where do we, that whole, what do you, when you think about deconstruction, what happens? Well, people start to question the inerrancy of scripture. Most people deconstruct, like, and I landed on the side of faith because I never really questioned that's why deconstructionists would say, well, Lena, you didn't really deconstruct. You still believe in or under the authority of the word of God. We could argue about that because a lot of the premise of what I believed about church and life and faith have taken a complete transformative process to the better. But it's true. I never really questioned the inerrancy and authority of scripture. But once you do, it's not abnormal. So why, when you look at now, track many of the deconstructionists, it's interesting. I've watched that a lot. And of course, you know, I, you know, you start seeing patterns of people who have deconstructed who either have come out as gay or have had family members who, you know, they've changed their views on sexuality. And, and a lot of it sort of ties, I think, with this question of what does the Bible teach? Because God, I mean, I think, again, you go back to, you can take the word of God and try to follow it obediently like a good soldier. But if your heart isn't moved by the spirit of God and the presence of God in your life, you're not, not going to be able to make it. It's like living as a Christian by the law. You can get saved by faith and end up living by the law, which is a lot of my, like I would look at my 20 year old self and tell my 40 year old self like, man, you don't have to work so hard. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, I, you know, and I think one thing you're saying about deconstruction there and the progression that you mentioned, I think sometimes people start with a sexual issue. So it's a sexual pain point of why do I feel so lonely? Why didn't God bring marriage? You know, why would God give me same sex desires and then say I can't act on them? Now we go back to scripture and we look at the rules and we're like, well, therefore God can't be good. And if I do believe in a God, I have to make him good in my framework by changing scripture. So, yeah, I think a big... Or, or you say, yeah, yeah, God can be good. God is good. And God wouldn't create me this way. Therefore, this book cannot be trusted. However you want to. You might not even be bold enough to say, I've struggled with the goodness of God, but I've held on to the authority and mercy of his word. But it's funny because a lot of people who deconstruct still believe God is good, you know, just... That book must. Oh yeah, humans ruined it by interpreting it's just, this book too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul was a misogynist, and they didn't understand our culture. And but it starts with the sexual question, and you know I think that's key. They don't start with, oh, I don't know about the authority of scripture. The sexual question prompts. That's a good point. And whole, I think, by the way, it's uh, and, and it's funny because we we see it play out more in the gay community and the same sex attraction, even the trans issues. But really, I think this is where I think sometimes evangelicals and conservatives can be hypocritical because we it's easy to find the worst sin 
If you only try to fix the problem on a behavioral level, you cannot fix the problem, which only leads you to feel more defeated, which and less whole. And now you're not just a person who is single, who has a sexual nature and doesn't know what to do with it, but now you're a failure because you've Mm -hmm. slept with your Mm -hmm. boyfriend or because you've watched porn or because you masturbate or all the things that you're not supposed to do. And now, you know, I've, really been the work that I've done in the last few years that have really helped me the most has been sort of trying to dig through why, why are these patterns there? Why does a pastor Mm -hmm. who has everything going for him and, you know, mega book sales and church just flourishing, Mm -hmm. why does he fall in? Why is he having these, you know, why, why are we scratching our heads going, what? But I thought these people were all kind of getting saved under his teaching. People are quoting him like, and then us, like your own self, you kind of go like, I'm a Christian. Why can't I change? And you start to wonder, am I even a Christian? Well, why? Why do you keep going back to the vomit? Like the Bible says, like it's like a dog goes back to his vomit. Why do we keep doing it when we know better? And it's usually yeah. there is a reason. You have to figure it out. Yeah. And I think as you start to understand how God has wired us and what he's wired us for. And and yes, so God has a solution for our sexuality. And it might not be in sleeping with your boyfriend but or in having an orgasm, but I think we need to chase that. Hey, just cutting in here for a second. In case you missed it, we just wrapped up our Reclaim 2.0 virtual conference, helping married couples reclaim God's design for sex in their marriages. And if you miss it, I recommend that you take a look of God's Sex in Your Marriage, both a book and workbook. Those are available to you through the links in our show notes. Now, these are just great resources to help you as you seek to embrace God's design for marital sexuality. All right, back to my conversation with Lena. You say this in your book, uh, maybe using different words, but I think we've got to realize we keep going back to it because at some level it's working for us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yes. and it's we don't like to admit that. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's meeting some need. It's yeah. the wrong way of meeting that need. But I think once we admit that and we start saying, how is it working for us? Like, what problem is it solving for me, at least in the short term? Now we're starting to get to the place where we can make some progress. Well, and I, well, here's the thing though. So here's the thing. So in the short run, when I say short run, I mean, very short run, it might fix a little bit of a problem, but if you're truly a Christian, and you truly are wired with the spirit of God in you, that short run runs out quickly. And it quickly transforms into, again, what the Bible has get, says is, is a grace, really, which is the guilt, the shame, the feeling of, you almost want to obliterate that part of your life. You want to hide, it's like the, the messy drawer in your closet, you know, you know, you know, that space that you don't want your guests to come and see. Like people always joke, oh, I hope if I die, they burn my diaries. I don't want anybody to read it. Because usually you're, if you're an honest journalist, then you're writing some of those things out. And But what kind of ways to live is that? You know, the whole like mortification of sin, the book, the Puritans, you know, that culture of mortify it, kill it, kill it, kill it. You know, but that always also, even now, like I think about it and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think in theory that's nice, but like it always feels it's almost like amputating a finger. Like, you know, like, yeah, the finger is gone. If it's infected and whatever, you cut it off. It's, you know, you can learn to function without it. That always felt like, like even when I think about mortification of sin, sometimes it feels like that. Like my struggle, my tension for the years, I always felt like you're just telling me to kill that finger. But there's always phantom pains, right? Every doctor knows that you, if you're taking care of an amputee, you have to warn them against phantom pains. And it's that that's, that jars you. Is you can cut off the finger and cauterize it and be like, I'm going to be like stronger. I'm not going to have these urges. Whereas back in 2000, no, let's say 1950 or 60 or 70 or 80, you literally had to like, 
like go out of your house in order to be exposed. And now it's almost like we're raped by the culture with sexual information. I don't mean it to that degree, but like the point is it's constant barrage. Like you have to be so, so vigilant, alert. Like I know Paul, you know, and, and Peter and others have written like, be sober, be awake. But it's like so much everywhere you look, like Satan has attacked us. Like it's like a... It's like just like military, you know, evil against us where now, like, I think I, I have these stats that are from Barna, but like 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn in 94% of children will see porn by age 14, 94%. I think for me, I went through phases, like my twenties, I thought with my battle with less, I always felt like, you know, like I'll marry eventually it's going to go away. And I would go with seasons with good spurts you know it wasn't like you know it's I didn't, like i would it was, it was clearly a besetting sin but i would have victory but i always thought well eventually i'll get over it and then you wake up in your 30s and you're not married and you're like now what do i do with it so you might have a longer stretch you know you're teaching the bible i mean you're not like trying to be a sinner right and you're still it's corralled in a certain way but you know how these things like you can't corral certain things and I guess what I was saying with the culture, too, is the idea also is that, like, what you think, what, what we know, like, I, I, mean, I think most Christians, I think we could all agree, if you're a Christian, that porn is wrong, right? I mean, like, to me, like, that's like, but what can happen, like, going back to your people that you're seeing, or that even the life I live, is that you go with, like, okay, I'm going to be married, it's going to be solved, which every married people know that doesn't get solved. I mean, I think men who struggle with porn and their wives, I mean, that's well established that becomes and it's very common and i really have a lot of compassion mean, no one talks about that even that much a little but not that much people who used to struggle with porn before marriage but then it comes back to haunt them in marriage because it's not a sex problem it's a heart problem and then but, but for me then you go into the 30s and there's a bit of a okay like you i fluctuated between okay god help me like going to church there's you know a desire you know you walk to the front you lay it at the altar you feel better for a while then you fall again to honestly, what happened in my 40s, it became like this resigned, well, I guess I'm screwed. This is going to be my, you know, I'm gonna, just going to have to take on grace. Much like I have people who are in the same sex, like have been even a friend of mine who is a lesbian and got saved as a lesbian. And so she's resigned to a life where she believes Christ died for her sins. She's going to heaven, all of this. And this will have to be an area. She's married to a woman and she just figures this is going to be something. When Jesus says what, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. And relying on grace and that knowing she would even say the Bible teaches it's wrong, but sort of in this tension of, I don't, can't change. I, but I will tell you, humbly speaking, I feel in some way I was in that category for a while, especially after I deconstructed, let's call it, or left the church and felt abandoned by God's people in that it just felt so futile. What hope is there? And the longer you hide it, you don't talk about it, but what do you do? Like if you're, you know, you get to that point where you so then right. I can say, screw it. Yeah. I can't fix this problem. Then I'm just going to have to rely on God's grace. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it just feels like exhausting. Mm -hmm. But honestly, that's almost the floor level you have to get at before yeah. yes. God has room to say, all right, finally, and you're going to stop trying so hard to fix yourself. Yeah. I want to ask you, like, did that happen to you? Like from the forties to where you are now, do you feel like there's some yeah, shifting yeah. that has really right. given you some victory? I think the biggest shift for me that has led to victory is the work I've done with my therapist, I will say. And I know, and I say this every time I talk about therapists, I mean, I know that therapists are not 
oh, biblical, like Paul says in verse three of therapist. You, but I, first of all, some of it is my wiring. I'm not a person who is going to open up to people about certain things as much as I open. Like it's interesting because I, I am open about, but selectively, and I do better as many introverts do in a crowd of people speaking up front than I do in a small group. So the small group formula in churches has never worked for me. I just can't. And the times that I've mustered the energy to confess the sin, I think the problem is that small group leaders aren't really equipped necessarily to handle. And so it's it's backfired in a sense because it's felt almost like, what's the point? And so to me, when I eventually left my church so that I wasn't in a structure, so, so counseling to me offered, of course, a counseling component, but it also offered a place of safe accountability. And I talk about safe people in my book, and I really think that's at the heart of, I just needed a place to be able to flesh things out with a person who understood how to help me get to the wise. And by the time I did that work, and I also saw that even having talked about some of the stuff, I was still loved and accepted in the context of a counseling relationship, but it was freeing to me. So, to, so a lot of the freedom to me has happened in being able to say like, like sort of like admit the, your deepest secret, right? I mean, because you can admit a lot to people, but not your deepest secrets. And, but when, because you always have this fear, like, oh, I'm going to, what, you know, whatever the worst thing, like, I think this is why a lot of pastors don't confess their struggles. And then you hear about them in the news. Well, because they wait so long, but why don't they tell the struggle? Well, because they could get fired or they could lose, you know, their family could, whatever. I mean, there's so many repercussions to admitting how bad you are. But, and so for me, I didn't have some of the repercussions that other people in leadership had in that in some ways I in some ways, I viewed myself too as there's a point where I felt like I had I wasn't part of the big mega church that was, you know, flash and lightning and all this stuff. And my books, like they sold, but not bestsellers. Like it's, it felt like my platform wasn't growing. Like it felt like I couldn't, like I couldn't get any lower. Like and it's like, what, what am I gonna lose? Really, a few handful of churches not asking me to speak, publishers not asking me to write. Like who? There was a point where it didn't matter anymore. The fact that I wasn't so successful was a blessing in that. And so I think, in a sense, feeling like a failure has, which part of the work I've done in counseling has been this, and part of why, you know, you behave a certain ways because you have this such high expectations that you can't meet. Again, you go back to this works, faith, grace, living, works, living. And so, so being in an atmosphere where I was able to sort of know that, well, this is a counseling relationship, therefore she can't tell anybody. Right. By law, she's got to keep it a secret. Exactly. And being a doctor, I understood that. And so yeah. that was freeing. No. And then, and honestly, Julie, writing about it. I got to say, there were even some, there was a level of truth that I wrote about that I hadn't even spoken out loud to my counselor. She read that one was, she was one of the early readers of the book. My agent, um, a friend of mine who used to be my assistant at my old church, who's lovely. And I talk about her, Bonnie. She's amazing. She's on my board and she is of, the, of our organization and she hasn't messed up past. So I yeah, knew that yeah. she would have mm. grace for me. And she talks about her, but I mean, it's not like, you know, right, she right. just has a, and she's yeah. scared for people. Right, by law. She's got to keep it a secret. Yeah, let me ask you about that with your counselor. I do feel like that's a great place to start. Like you've got this safety relationship. Yeah. You don't have to worry about asking them questions too. You don't have to worry about them telling anyone. Is there a time at which then we need to learn how to take those secrets outside of the counseling room and trust them to as you're saying, the Bonnies of the world, your safe people, your safe community, so that we still don't feel like we live in hiding. You want to know, Julie, I went to counseling 
on the surface, I had first first step. I didn't go straight to counseling. I'll tell you my my relationship with counseling. Let me tell you a little bit of that because I think it'll help. I was lonely in that season after leaving my church and displaced. I didn't know, you know. I, although I started to work in Lebanon, so my on the outside, I was doing a lot of activities that were very noble. That was when I started the, the work in, with the Syrian refugees. But I felt like I was detached from humans in a sense that my my circle. I, I of course, you know, I had my own team at at my ministry, but it just felt like I, I was out of place, and so. Then the Lord, in his way of providentially working things, was so good in leading me to someone that I had known of who was had been Moody-related. So, And I really connected with her, and I felt like she understood my baggage. So I started there, and as I started talking to her, it was clear that I needed deeper help. But it took it was about six months. of, And then by the time I went to therapy, it was because of a family situation, uh, that was very challenging and continues to be. But at the t- and then, of course, when you start going, so I was at a point where I le- really needed the help. But but here I'm saying it was in in my mind. Always there was a knowledge of I have a problem I need to deal with. I just don't know where, Lord. I'm trying. I dealt with you, and in a sense, that should have been the reason I went to counseling. But I just was too ashamed. I was just stunted or, I mean, I was really, I was ashamed to talk about it. And so the Lord saw fit to allow me to get into this path of counseling. And I knew from day one going there that this would have to come up as part of the greater dynamic. I knew it as a doctor, as a human. I just understood that there's a part of my life. And so it took a while for me to completely confess it, maybe a few months of therapy at, at one level, and then another year to, you know, because it's all deeper levels. I think, you know, the shame, I think, I don't know. I think that's Satan's tool. And really think at the end of the day, that's it. If you could understand that, well, first, God already knows. B, the people who are going to judge you, like, what are they, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Deal with it. Because when you do, when you step into the light, there's such freedom that, like, you're never going to, you can, because you could, I, I would tell myself, I've confessed it to God. I'm good. But it's not, you're not free, free, free. There's a difference. And I think this is why when I say, when I wrote the book, it's like, let everybody read it. Let everybody know. This is, this is the true self. And you want to read it, read it. You don't like me. You want to cancel me? Do it. Do it. I, I end the epilogue with that. And I, I just say it so bluntly. Like, you want to cancel me? I've already done it myself, to myself. I've been my own worst critic. Always at the root of it is that knowledge of I have failed so miserably in this area of my life. And, and, and you could, again, I've had people email me and say, you know, you talk about, you know, this, but that's not really a sin. And God really created you, all the stuff that you just said, but, but you know in your soul. This, I mean, again, you go back to, if you are a Christian, yeah, you can numb it. You can numb this, the, you can quench the Holy Spirit, but, but you're still a child of God and God is still going to move you to repentance if, if you're, you know, if, I, at least I, I hope he is. And if he's not, you have to question whether you really know him. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about confessing and being honest, I feel like in my experience in working with sexuality, especially with women, it's easier to confess and like an adulterous affair or a hookup or even pornography than it is masturbation. Like I, I, The word itself, people don't want to say. Oh, I know. I, I yeah. don't understand why. I don't even, and I'll tell you the other one, erotica. Yeah. The word makes your ears kind of go, yeah. I know you wrote a book about that. I know. But I'm telling you, most respectable women probably didn't read it. Yes. And I thought of myself as a respectable woman. I didn't read it because I it just felt so trashy in a way. 
I agree with you. And I think it is, it's so weird. And and the lines get so blurred. I really think it's so critical. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. Hmm. 13. Wow. And I've always been intrigued with stats because I feel like you're always going to try to make yourself look better when you answer a survey. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. So that if there's, if there's, I mean, most people like aren't going to be like, oh, I watch porn. Like, so if they're saying only 13% say they never, and 80, that means 87% have watched porn. Now, granted, maybe they just did it once. I don't know how many times that qualifies, but this is Barna data. I mean, it's respectable data. It's not like, you know, I'm not skewing like an article, taking a little, they, they Google it, like you'll see. So my point with that is, and so once you get into this land of porn, as you know, and I talk about that in the book, like it doesn't it's not a stretch when you start reading or watching or any of that land to even feel same-sex attraction which psychologists tell us that line women who watch porn are more likely to have same-sex attraction and not be lesbians right and i don't say this to say i'm not lesbian like because i don't think i've delved into that a lot but enough to understand now why i bring it up i think this is an important thing in my book that i don't think enough people in the church are talking about is now you've got this generation of like eight to 20 year olds growing up particularly women who have lesbian feelings and experiences same-sex feelings let's say and experiences maybe not experiences, maybe thoughts. And so if a 10 or 12 year old who's been exposed to porn now thinks, ooh, I have an attraction to a girl. Now they think, oh, I'm gay. We are not our feelings. Yes. Yeah. And there's this sense in our culture now that if you have a same sex feeling, oh, well, maybe you're not lesbian, but you must be bi. Well, what, what? No, I'm, it's all the sin. I can make you a list of the sin. And it's not my decision. Again, you go back to where we started this conversation, which is you, you either believe the word and abide and under its authority or you don't. I don't think the struggle with lust for me will ever end, probably. I mean, at this point, I'm 51. I'll be 52 in the spring. And I think if I've lasted this long with the struggle, probably it will be my life more burden. And, but I think the Lord has given me a deeper understanding of what he longs to be for me. Well, is this idea of a lifelong struggle kind of sad or challenging for you to accept? If so, hey, don't lose hope. I think if there's one key takeaway we can draw away from this conversation with Lena, it's that our struggles with temptation and our battles with lust aren't going to make us any less God's children. As Lena said so eloquently, God longs to reveal himself to us as we pursue him with integrity. He wants to be what we need in every circumstance, and that includes even in the middle of our tough and really ugly stretches. I'd recommend you get a hold of Lena's book. It's called Don't Tell Anyone You're Reading This. It's available for purchase through the link in our show notes. You can also find links to her website and other books she's written. And if you are interested in hearing more conversations like this one and want to connect with others on their journeys to love Jesus despite the struggle, I want to invite you to become a member of the Authentic Intimacy community. As an Authentic Intimacy member, you join a body of believers all on their own personal journeys to make sense of God and sex so that you're no longer alone in your pursuit. Members also get access to the full Java with Julie archive, which has over 500 episodes, discounted access to events, special member-only resources, and reduced pricing for our online book studies. You can find out more about becoming a member at AuthenticIntimacy.com slash member. Well, thanks for joining me today. Next week, you're going to hear my interview with Ed and Lisa Young, who tragically lost their daughter a few years ago after a battle of poor mental health and substance abuse. And hey, if you're walking through any kind of grief, I know that it's going to be an episode that deeply encourages you. 
That's all I have for you today, and I'll see you next Monday on Java with Julie.